The following sermon is taken from the collected works of Stephen Charnock, Volume 5. It is called A Discourse of Delight in Prayer. It is taken from Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. This psalm in the beginning is a heap of instructions. The great lesson intended in it is placed in verse 1. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. It is resumed in verses 7 and 8, where many reasons are alleged to enforce it. Don't fret. 1. Do not envy them. Do not be troubled at their prosperity. 2. Do not imitate them. Do not be provoked by their glowworm happiness to practice the same wickedness to arrive to the same prosperity. 3. Do not be sinfully impatient and do not quarrel with God because he has not by his providence allowed you the same measures of prosperity in the world. Do not accuse him of injustice and cruelty because he afflicts the good and is indulgent to the wicked. Leave him to dispense his blessings according to his own mind. And four, do not condemn the way of piety and religion in which you are. Think not the worse of your profession, because it is attended with affliction. The reason of this exhortation is rendered in verse 2, For they shall soon be cut down as the grass, and wither as a green herb, amplified by a similitude or resemblance of their prosperity to grass. Your happiness has no stability, it has, like grass, more of color and show than strength and substance. Grass nods this and that way with every wind. The mouth of a beast may pull it up, or the foot of a beast may tread it down. The scorching sun in summer, or the fainting sun in winter, will deface its complexion. The psalmist then proceeds to positive duties. Verse 3. Faith. Trust in the Lord. This is a grace most fit to quell such impatience. The stronger the faith, the weaker the passion. Impatient motions are signs of a flagging faith. Many times men are ready to cast off their help in Jehovah and address to the God of Ekron. Multitudes of friends are riches, but trust in the Lord, in the promises of God, in the providence of God. 2. Obedience. Do good. Trust in God's promises and observance of his precepts must be linked together. It is but a pretended trust in God where there is a real walking in the paths of wickedness. Do not let the glister of the world render you faint and languid in a course of piety. 3. You must keep your station. Do good. Because wicked men flourish, hide not yourself therefore in a corner, but keep your sphere. Run your race, and verily you shall be fed. You'll have everything needful for you. And now because men delight in that in which they trust, the psalmist diverts us from all other objects of delight to God as the true object. Delight yourself in the Lord. Place all your pleasure and joy in Him. And because the motive expresses the answer of prayer, the duty enjoined seems to respect the act of prayer as well as the object of prayer. Prayer coming from a delight in God. 
in a delight in seeking Him. Trust is both a spring of joy and the spring of supplication. When we trust Him for sustenance and preservation, we shall receive them. So when we delight in seeking Him, we shall be answered by Him. 1. The duty. In the act, delight. In the object, the Lord. 2. The motive. He shall give you the desires of your heart. The most substantial desires, those desires which he approves of. The desire of your heart is gracious, though not the desire of your heart is carnal. The desire of your heart is a Christian, though not the desire of your heart is a creature. He shall give. God is the object of our joy and the author of our comfort. Doctrine. Delight in God, in seeking Him only, procures gracious answers. Or, without cheerful prayers, we cannot have gracious answers. There are two parts to this. One, cheerfulness on our part. Two, God's granting on His part. First, cheerfulness and delight on our part. Joy is attuning the soul. The command to rejoice precedes the command to pray, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 and 17. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. Delight makes the melody. Prayer else will be but a harsh sound. God accepts a heart only when it is a gift, given, not forced. Delight is a marrow of religion. Dullness is not suitable to the great things we are chiefly to beg for. Gospel discoveries are a feast. Isaiah 25, verse 6. Dullness does not become such a solemnity. Manna must not be sought for with a dumpish heart. With joy we are to draw water out of the wells of salvation. Isaiah 12, verse 3. Faith is the bucket but joy and love are the hands that move it. They are the Ur and Aaron that hold up the hands of this Moses. God does not value that man's service who accounts not a service a privilege and a pleasure. Dullness is not suitable to the duty. Gospel duties are to be performed with a gospel temper. God's people ought to be a willing people. Psalm 110 verse 3 or a people of willingness, as though in prayer no other faculty of the soul had its exercise but the will. This must breathe fully in every word, as the Spirit in Ezekiel's wheels. Delight, like the angel in Judges 13 verse 20, must ascend in the smoke and flame of the soul. Though there be a kind of union by contemplation, yet the real union is by affection. A man cannot be said to be a spiritual king if he does not present his performances with a royal and prince-like spirit. It is for vigorous wrestling that Jacob is called a prince. Genesis 32 verse 28. This temper is essential to grace. Natural men are described to be of a heavy and weary temper in the offering of sacrifices. Malachi 1 verse 13. It was but a sickly, lame lamb they brought for an offering. And yet, weary of it, 
that which was not fit for their table they thought fit for the altar. In handling this doctrine I will show 1. What this delight is. 2. From what it springs. 3. The reasons of the doctrine. And number 4. Make application. 1. What is this delight? Delight, properly, is an affection of the mind that springs from the possession of a good which has been ardently desired. This is the top stone, the highest step. Delight is but an embryo till it come to fruition, and that certain and immutable. Otherwise, if there be probability or possibility of losing that which we have present possession of, the fear of it is as a drop of gall that infects the sweetness of this passion. Delight properly is a silencing of desire and a banquet of the soul on the presence of its desired object. But there is a delight of a lower stamp, one in desires. There is a delight in desire as well as in fruition, a cheerfulness in labor as well as in attainment. The desire of Canaan made the good Israelites cheerful in the wilderness. There is an inchoate delight in motion, but a consummate delight in rest, in fruition. Number two, in hopes. Desired happiness affects a soul much more expected happiness. Romans 5, 2. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Joy is the natural issue of a well-grounded hope. A tottering expectation will engender but a tottering delight. Such a delight will madmen have, which is rather to be pitied than desired. But if an imaginary hope can affect a heart with some real joy, much more a hope settled upon a sure bottom and raised upon a good foundation, there may be joy in a title as well as in possession. Number three in contemplation. The consideration and serious thoughts of heaven affect a gracious heart and fill it with pleasure, though itself be as if in a wilderness. The near approach to a desired good much affects the heart. Moses was surely more pleased with the sight of Canaan from Mount Pisgah than with the hopes of it in the desert. A traveler's delight is more raised when he is nearest his journey's end and a hungry stomach has a greater joy when he sees the meat approaching, which must satisfy the appetite. As a union with the object is nearer, so the delight is stronger. Now, this delight the soul has in duty. It is not a delight of fruition, but of desire, hope, or contemplation. We may consider delight as active, or passive, active, which is an act of our souls and our approaches to God when the heart, like the sun, rouses up itself as a giant to run a spiritual race. Passive, which is God's dispensation and approaches to us, and often met with in our cheerful addresses to God. Isaiah 64 verse 5. You meet him that rejoices and works righteousness. When we delightfully clasp about the throne of grace, God often casts his arm about our necks 
especially when cheerful prayers accompanied with a cheerful obedience. This joy is when Christ meets us in prayer with a be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Your request is granted. The act of delight is the health of the soul. The passive is the good complexion of the soul. The one is man's duty, the other God's peculiar gift. The one is the inseparable property of the new birth, the other a separable privilege. There may be a joy in God when there is little joy from God. There may be gold in the mine when no flowers are on the surface. Number two, we may consider delight as settled or transient, as spiritual or sensitive. First, a settled delight. In strong and grown Christians, when prayer proceeds out of a thankfulness to God, a judicious knowledge and apprehension of God, the nearer to God, the more delight. This emotion of a stone is most speedy when near its center. A sensitive delight, as in persons troubled in mind, there may be a kind of delight in prayer, because there is some sense of ease in the very venting itself. And in some, because of the novelty of a duty they were not accustomed to before, many prayers may be put up by persons in necessity without any spiritual delight in them, as crazy persons take more medicine than those that are healthy and observe the spring and fall, yet they don't delight in that medicine. The Pharisee could pray longer, and perhaps with some delight too, but on a sensual ground, with a proud and vaunting kind of cheerfulness, a delight in himself, when the publican had a more spiritual delight, though a humble sorrow, in the consideration of his own vileness, yet a delight in the consideration of God's mercy. This sensitive delight may be more sensible in a young than in a grown Christian. There is a more sensible affection at the first meeting of friends, though more solid after some converse, as there is a love which is called the love of espousals. As it is in sorrow for sin, so in this delight a young convert has a greater torrent, a grown Christian a more constant stream. As at the first conversion of a sinner, there is an overflowing joy among the angels which we do not read of after, though without question there is a settled joy in them at the growth of a Christian. An elder son may have a delight in his father's presence more rooted, firm, and rational than a younger child that clings more about him with affectionate expressions. As sincerity is the soul of all graces and duties, so this delight is a luster and embroidery of them. Now, this delight in prayer, one, it is an inward and hearty delight. As to the subject of it, it is seated in the heart. A man in prayer may have a cheerful countenance, but a drowsy spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in the heart, and love and joy are the first fruits of it. Galatians 5, verse 22. Love to duty, and joy in it. Joy is a grace, not as a mere comfort. 
As God is hearty in offering mercy, so is the soul in petitioning for it. There is a harmony between God and the heart. Where there is delight, there is great pains taken with the heart. A gracious heart strikes itself again and again as Moses did the rock. Twice. Those ends which God has and given are a Christian's ends in asking. Now, the more of our hearts and the requests, the more of God's heart and the grants. The emphasis of mercy is God's whole heart and whole soul in it. Jeremiah 32 verse 41. So the emphasis of duty is our whole heart and whole soul. As without God's cheerful answering, a gracious soul would not relish a mercy. So without our hearty asking, God does not relish our prayer. Number two, it is a delight in God who is the object of prayer, the glory of God, communion with him, enjoyment of him is a great end of a believer in his supplications. That delight which is in prayer is chiefly in it as a means conducing to such an end, and it is but a spark of that delight which the soul has in the object of prayer. God is the center in which the soul rests, and the end which the soul aims at. According to our apprehensions of God, our our desires for him, when we apprehend him as the chiefest good, we shall desire him and delight in him as the chiefest good. There must first be a delight in God before there can be a spiritual delight or permanency in duty. Job 27 verse 10 Will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call upon God? Delight is a grace, and as faith, desire, and love have God for their object, so does this. And according to the strength of our delight in the object or end is the strength of our delight in the means of attaining it. When we delight in God as glorious, we shall delight to honor him. When we regard him as good, we shall delight to pursue and enjoy him and delight in that which brings us to an intercourse with him. He that rejoices in God will rejoice in every approach to him. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Nehemiah 8 verse 10. The more joy in God, the more strength to come to him. The lack of this is the reason of our snail-like motion to him. Men have no sweet thoughts of God, and therefore no mind to converse with him. We cannot judge our delight in prayer to be right if we have not a delight in God. For natural men may have a delight in prayer when they have corrupt and selfish ends. They may have a delight in a duty, as it is a means, according to their apprehensions, to gain such an end, as Balaam and Balak offered their sacrifices cheerfully, hoping to ingratiate themselves with God, and to have liberty to curse his people. Number 3. A delight in the precepts and promises of God, which are the ground and rules of prayer. First, David delights in God's testimonies and then calls upon him with his whole heart. A gracious heart must first delight in precepts and promises before it can turn him into prayers. 
prepares nothing else but a presenting God with his own promise, desiring to work that in us and for us, which he has promised to us. None was more cheerful in prayer than David, because none was more rejoicing in the statutes of God. God's statutes were his songs. Psalm 119, verse 54. And the divine word was sweeter to him than the honey and honeycomb. If our hearts leap not at divine promises, we are like to have but drowsy souls in desiring them. If our eye is not upon the dainties God sets before us, our desires cannot be strong for him. If we have no delight in the great charters of heaven, the rich legacies of God, how can we sue for them? If we don't delight in the covenant of grace, we shall not delight in prayers for grace. It was the hopes of reward made Moses so valiant in suffering, and the joy set before Christ and a promise made him so cheerful in enduring the shame. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Number 4. A delight in prayer itself. A Christian's heart is in secret ravished into heaven. There is a delight in coming near God, in warming the soul by the fire of his love. The angels are cheerful in the act of praise. Their work is their glory. The holy soul delights in this duty, that if there were no command to engage him, no promise to encourage him, he would be stepping into God's courts. He thinks it is not a good day that passes without some prayer with God. David would have taken up his lodging in the courts of God and regards it as the only blessedness. Psalm 65 verse 4 And so great a delight he had in being in God's presence that he envies the birds a happiness of building their nests near his tabernacle. A delight there is in the holiness of prayer. A natural man under some troubles may delight in God's comforting and easing presence, but not in a sanctifying presence. He may delight to pray to God as a storehouse to supply his wants, but not as a refiner's fire to purge away his dross. Prayer, as praise, is a melody to God in the heart, Ephesians 5 verse 19, and the soul loves to be fingering the instrument and touching the strings. 5. A delight in the things asked for. This heavenly cheerfulness is most in heavenly things. What delight others have in asking worldly goods that a gracious heart has in big in the light of God's countenance. That soul cannot be dull in prayer that seriously considers he prays for no less than heaven and happiness, no less than the glory of the great God. A gracious man is never weary of spiritual things, as men are never weary of the sun. But though it is enjoyed every day, yet long for the rising of it again. From this delight in the manner of prayer it is that the saints have redoubled and repeated their petitions, and often doubled the Amen at the end of prayer, to manifest the great affections to those things they have asked. The soul loves to think of those things the heart is set upon, and frequent thoughts express a delight. 6. A delight in those graces and affections which are exercised in prayer. 
A gracious heart is most delighted with that prayer in which grace has been more stirring, and gracious affections have been boiling over. The soul desires not only to speak to God, but to make melody to God. The heart is the instrument, but graces are the strings, and prayer the touching them, and therefore he is more displeased with the flagging of his graces than with missing an answer. There may be a delight in gifts, in a man's own gifts, in the gifts of another, in the pomp and varnish of devotion, but a delight in exercising spiritual graces is an ingredient in this true delight. The Pharisees are marked by Christ to make long prayers, vaunting an outward bravery of words, as if they were playing the courtiers with God and complimenting him. But the publican had a short prayer, but more grace. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. There is reliance and humility. A gracious heart labors to bring flaming affections. And if he cannot bring flaming grace, he will bring smoking grace. He desires the preparation of his heart as well as the answer of his prayer. Psalm 10 verse 17. Part 2. Whence this delight springs, one, from the Spirit of God, not a spark of fire upon our own hearth, that is able to kindle the spiritual delight. It is the Holy Ghost that breathes such an heavenly heat into our affections. The Spirit is the fire that kindles the soul, the spring that moves the watch, the wind that drives the ship. The swiftest ship with spread sails will be but sluggish in its motion unless the wind fills its sails. Without this Spirit, we are but in a weak and sickly condition our breath, but short, heavy, and troublesome asthma is upon us. Psalm 138, verse 3. When I cried unto you, you strengthened me with strength in my soul. As prayer is the work of the Spirit in the heart, so delight in prayer owes itself to the same author. God will make them joyful in his house of prayer. Isaiah 56, verse 7. Number 2. From grace, whence this delight springs, the Spirit kindles, but gives us the oil of grace to make the lamp burn clear. There must not only be wind to drive, but cells to catch it. A prayer without grace is a prayer without wings. There must be grace to begin it. A dead man cannot rejoice in his land, money, or food. He cannot act and therefore cannot be cheerful in action. Cheerfulness supposes life. Dead men cannot perform a duty. Psalm 115, verse 17. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor dead souls a cheerful duty. There must not only be grace infused, but grace actuated. No man in a sleep or swoon can rejoice. There must not only be a living principle, but a lively operation. If the sap lurk only in the root, the branches can bring forth no fruit. Our best prayers without the sap of grace diffuse in itself will be but as withered branches. Grace actuated puts heed into performances, without which they are but benumbed and frozen.
rusty grace is a rusty key will not unlock. It will not enlarge the heart. There must be grace to maintain it. There is not only need of fire to kindle the lamp, but of oil to preserve the flame. Natural men may have their affections kindled in a way of common working, but they will presently faint and die, as a flame of cotton will dim and vanish if there be no oil to nourish it. There is a temporary joy in hearing the word, and if one in duty, why not in another? Why not in prayer? Matthew 13 verse 20. Like a fire of thorns that makes a great blaze, but a short stay. Number three, from a good conscience. A good heart is a continual feast. Proverbs 15 verse 15. He that has a good conscience needs be cheerful in his religious and civil duties. Guilt will come trembling and with a sad countenance into the presence of God's majesty. Guilty child cannot with cheerfulness come into a displeased father's presence. A soul smoked with hell cannot with delight approach to heaven. Guilty souls in regard of the injury they have done to God will be afraid to come and in regard of the foot of sin in which they are defiled, in the blackness they have contracted, they will be ashamed to come. They know that by their sins they should provoke his anger, not allure his love. A soul under conscience of sin cannot look up to God, Psalm 40 verse 12, nor will God with favor look down upon it, Psalm 59 verse 2. It must be a pure heart that must see him with pleasure, Matthew 5, verse 8. And pure hands must be lifted up to him, 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. Jonah was asleep after his sin and was outstripped in quickness to pray, even by idolaters. The mariners jog him but could not get him that we read of to call upon that God whom he had offended, Jonah 1. Where there is corruption, the sparks of sin will kindle that tender and weaken a spiritual delight. A perfect heart and a willing mind are put together, First Chronicles 29.2. There cannot be willingness without sincerity, nor sincerity without willingness. Number four, from a holy and frequent familiarity with God, where there is a great familiarity, there is a great delight. Delight in one another's company and delight in one another's converse. Strangeness contracts, and familiarity delights the soul. There is more alacrity in going to a God with whom we are acquainted than to a God to whom we are strangers. This encourages the soul to go to God. I go to a God whose face I have seen, whose goodness I have tasted, with whom I have often met in prayer. Frequent familiarity makes us more apprehensive of the excellency of another. An excellency apprehended will be beloved, and being beloved will be delighted in. Number five, from hopes of speeding, there is an expectative delight which arises from hopes of enjoying him. Romans twelve twelve, rejoicing in hope. There cannot be a pleasant motion where there is a palsy of doubts. How full of delight must that soul be that can plead a promise and carry God's hand and seal to heaven and show him his own bond 
when it can be pleaded, not only as a favor to engage his mercy, but in some sense to engage his truth and righteousness. Christ in his prayer, which was his swan-like song in John 17, pleads the terms of the covenant between his Father and himself. I've glorified you on earth. Glorify me with that glory I had with you before the world was. This is a case of a delightful approach when we carry a covenant of grace with us for ourselves and a promise of security and perpetuity for the church. Upon this account, we have more cause of a pleasant motion to God than ancient believers had. Fear acted him under the law, but love is under the gospel. He cannot but delight in prayer that has arguments of God's own framing to plead with God, who cannot deny his own arguments and reasonings. Little comfort can be sucked from a perhaps, but when we come to seek covenant mercies, God's faithfulness to his covenant puts the mercy past a perhaps. We come to a God sitting upon a throne of grace, upon Mount Zion, not on Mount Sinai to a God that desires our presence more than we desire His assistance. Application Without cheerful seeking, we cannot have a gracious answer. God will not give an answer to those prayers that dishonor Him. A flat and dumpish temper is not for His honor. The heathen themselves thought their God should not be put off with a sacrifice dragged to the altar. We read of no lead, that lumpish earthly metal, employed about the tabernacle or temple, but the purest and most glistering sorts of metals. God will have the most excellent service, because he is the most excellent being. He will have the most delightful service, because he bestows the most delightful and excellent gifts. All sacrifices were to be offered up with fire which is the quickest and most active element. It is a dishonor to so grace a glorious a majesty to put him off with such low and dead-hearted services. Those petitions cannot expect an answer which are offered in a manner injurious to the person we address to. Number two, dull and lumpish prayer does not reach him and therefore cannot expect an answer. Such desires are as arrows that sink down at our feet. There is no force to carry them to heaven. The heart is an unbent bow that has no strength. When God will hear, he makes first a prepared heart, Psalm 10 verse 17. He first strings the instrument and then receives the sound of it. An enlarged heart only runs, Psalm 119 verse 32. A contracted heart moves slowly and often faints in the journey. 3. Lumpishness speaks an unwillingness that God should hear us. It speaks a kind of fear that God should grant our petition. He that puts up a petition to a prince coldly and dully gives him good reason to think that he does not care for an answer. The husbandman has no great mind to a harvest that is lazy in tilling his ground and sowing his seed. How can we think God should delight over our petitions when we take so little delight in presenting them. God does not give mercy to the unwilling person. The first thing God does is make his people willing. 
dull spirits seek God, as if they did not care for finding him. Such tempers either account not God real, or their petitions unnecessary. Number 4. Without delight we are not fit to receive a mercy. Delight in a mercy, wanted, makes room for desire. Enlarged desires make room for mercy. If no delight in begging, there will be no delight in enjoying. If there be no cheerfulness to quicken our prayers when we need a blessing, there will be little joy to quicken our praise when we receive a blessing. A weak, sickly stomach is not fit to be seated at a plentiful table. Where there is a dull asking supply, there is none, or a very dull, sense of our wants. Now God will not send his mercies but to a soul that will welcome them. The deeper the sense of our wants, the higher the estimation of our supplies. A cheerful soul is fit to receive the least, and fit to receive the greatest mercy. It will more prize a little mercy than a dull petitioner. Shall prize a greater, because he has a sense of his needs. Had not Zacchaeus had a great joy to news of Christ's coming by his door? He had not so readily entertained and welcomed him. Application 2 of Information There is a great pleasure in the ways of God if rightly understood. Prayer, which is the duty in which we express our wants, is delightful. There is more sweetness in a Christian's asking than in a wicked man's enjoying blessings. 2. What delight will there be in heaven? If there be such sweetness and desire, what will there be in full fruition? There is joy in seeking. What is there in finding? Duty has its sweets, its thousands, but glory is ten thousands. If the pleasure of the seed time be so great, what will the pleasure of the harvest be? Number three, the miserable condition of those that can delight in anything but prayer. It is an aggravation of our enmity to God when we can sin cheerfully and pray dully, when duty is more loathsome than iniquity. Application 2 of Examination We pray, but how are our hearts? If it be for what concerns our momentary being, is not our running like the running of a hemias? But when for spiritual things do not our hearts sink within us like navels, let us therefore follow our hearts close. Don't allow them to give us a slip in our examination of them. Resolve not to take the first answer, but search to the bottom. 1. Whether we delight at all in prayer. How do we prize the opportunities of this duty? There is an opportunity of an earthly and an opportunity of an heavenly gain. Consider which our hearts more readily close with. Can we with much pleasure follow a vain world and heartlessly welcome an opportunity of duty? Delight more with Judas and bags than in Christ's company? This is sad. But are praying opportunities or festival times? Do we go to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise? Do we prepare ourselves by delightful and enlivening considerations? Do we think of the precept of God which should spur us, and of the promise of God which should allure us? Do we rub our souls to heat them? Do we blow them to kindle them into a flame? 
do we send up ejaculations for a quickening spirit? If thoughts of God are a burden, requests to Him will not be a pleasure. If we have a coldness in our thoughts of God and duty, we can have no warmth in our desire or delight in our petitions.